The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Hi, everyone, and welcome home. Welcome to Home is Within You, where we transform shame into power. And why do we do that? Because in my personal experience and in observing other people, I've learned that shame is society's and the mind's biggest weapon to separate us from each other and from our true selves and the biggest obstacle when we're on a healing journey. Today, I'm super excited because we have the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice representative with us, Jesse Collaire. And I can't remember how our roads crossed other than I must have seen something online and was just, you know, right up the same alley. I'm a big advocate against... Um, you know, judging and shaming of people's responses to pain, especially trauma. And so any way that we can fulfill their mission, which is, quote, preventing and mitigating trauma and adversity, as well as promoting resiliency, recovery, healing, and growth so that all are supported to flourish and thrive. Now, their vision is amazing. And so specifically it states trauma-informed, resilience-building, healing-centered, prevention-oriented, and community-led approaches benefit us all. 
So we're going to dive into what is trauma-informed policies and practices, what the community work and policy work of CTIP is, and begin with a little bit of, of information about its leader, Jesse Collaire. And I'm always interested in knowing like what brings folks to this kind of work. Um, I mean, I just got to say trauma-informed policies and practices across the gamut in all systems that I used to call when I was executive director of the Family Justice Center, my boss and the ER director that worked with us from um, Highland Hospital called it ports of entry. Wherever there's like a port of entry for a survivor, it could be anywhere. It could be the bus stop. It could be the grocery store. But most importantly, when it's in a government agency, so the police or a hospital um, or a private doctor's office, there's so many different layers. We hope that there's trauma-informed responses and not kind of an immediate judgment first and foremost, but a kind of holistic human view of, of what this person might be going through. And the goal, yes, is human compassion and change and healing, but it also really determines efficiency of all the funds that we contribute and that we dedicate to helping people um, reduce the violence in their lives and, and heal. And when we have that more human approach, I believe that there's more efficiency and collaboration. So right here, right now, we have my son who just came in here. And so I am going to pause a second. So Jesse Collaire, who just met my son, who's sick home from school. He's on loan, serving as CTIP's executive director. Um, what does that mean? So I, I am not paid by the organization. The organization as a startup um, okay. has invested in other staff capacity. So our wonderful vision that you talked about was written by my colleague, Whitney Maris, who's okay. a part-time staff person. I started another nonprofit, The Change Campaign, that does other work in addition to supporting the campaign for trauma-informed policy and practice in my role as executive director. Um, but on loan creates capacity for our limited, our currently limited resources and funds to be that's, directed to build the team instead of just going to me. That's beautiful. So that's how the collaboration happens. It's 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 a whole bunch of organizations coming together for CTIP's goal and vision. And so the word on loan, that's what that means. That's beautiful. Essentially, yeah. And we hope to become, you know, it's an independent 501c3 nonprofit. We hope to be able to have a full-time team over time, mm -hmm. but it has been remarkably helpful, a collaborative effort to mm -hmm. help launch the organization to where mm -hmm. it is now compared to a few years ago when we first got funding compared to 2015 when the organization was first founded. I'm I'm loving this. Okay. So Jesse is in charge of organizational administration and HR, fundraising, strategic planning, public engagements, and working to create conditions of safety and empowerment 
for the entire team and volunteers in their roles in the organization. So the change campaign. So the change campaign is he's on loan from them. And this collaboration is just, this is where social change happens. So do you want to explain a little bit about how you got into this work and the initial stages of developing CTIP, the, the motivation behind your personal work and its creation? Yeah, yeah. So two different stories that came together in, I, I believe, a wonderful way. Um, you know, for, for me, I was, I've been blessed um, to come from a family that loves me unconditionally and mm. a community that was able to provide resources and supports for me during some very traumatic um, and trying times in my early life. I had an eating disorder um, where I had choked on a piece of food and was unable to eat solid food for four months at the age of 13 um, and would just have anxiety Mm. attacks and really struggled through that. As I emerged through the supports and love that I had from the community around me, I um, had another, probably the most, I don't mean to compare trauma here, but, but in my mind, it's the most traumatic moment was when I was 15, my best friend passed away in a plane crash. Um, suddenly, and, uh, that was an incredibly traumatic moment for myself, my family, the community at large. Um, and had a lot of supports and resources again, struggled a lot, but was also lifted up and saw the promise of the ways in which relationships can lead to healing over time from some of life's most trying moments and had other highs. I mean, those are two trials that I had, but also had triumphs in sports and school socially. Um, and, but, but fast forwarding, um, when I graduated from college in 2016, I, I joined a nonprofit organization called 12 plus that worked in, uh, public high schools in Philadelphia. And Mm -hmm. I saw the ways in which there was so much more disproportionately more adversity faced Mm -hmm. by the students that I worked with and in the communities that I was working in um, with far fewer resources and supports to promote healing. And so I recognized how lucky I was and and I got um, and really saw my privilege in a number of ways. And saw my um, my a, a potential role for myself as helping to transform the education system to mm-hmm. better support people in reaching their their full potential. And so I got a master's in educational leadership. And during that year, I had an internship with the Pennsylvania Office of Attorney General to help create the Pennsylvania Trauma Informed Care Network. And that was my introduction that was through to the attorney care. general's office. And yeah, it was an wow. internship with my master's program. And that was when I was introduced to CTIP. Um, and so was that a program of the AG's office? The master's in educational leadership? No. <laughs> so I just, uh, while I was in my master's program, I met the executive deputy attorney general for the office of public engagement, who was mm-hmm. helping to develop the Pennsylvania, what we called at the time, the Pennsylvania Trauma-Informed Care Network. Okay. And um, I thank you so much for sharing 
all of this. And I I, want to stop you because it's so brave and amazing to hear you put into words a, a human experience of that process when you were a child. And so I want to ask you, we drag feelings, we drag shame in particular out of the shadows. And so for you, as a little boy, can you tap into and describe the initial feelings of your feelings make you defective, um, your health situation with with the eating challenges, the secret belief that you were defective. How how did shame show up that way? Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember um, with the eating disorder. I, I I don't. I just remember being different. I don't remember shame showing up as ever presently as it did after Doug passed away. When so shame, I've learned through Doctor Polter, yeah. it isn't like this is the thing. It's not like I feel ashamed. It's actually like a a belief something is wrong with us. Doctor Polter explains it's a it's a belief that we are incompetent or or defective, and so versus yeah. oh, I have this condition and. It's it doesn't change my worth or 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 this part of me. Does that relate at all? Yeah, yeah. I I remember not being able to eat. Like it's not like I didn't. I wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. I had vicious anxiety attacks. Like when food was near my mouth, because it would re-trigger or reactivate that memory of choking. I would be unable to eat solid food. So all that I could do was drink and sure um, in the process of my body and mind trying to save itself from that traumatic memory. I, w- I was doing massive harm. I was putting myself in incredible risk. Um, and the ways in which I interacted with that fear, I again, I, I felt different. I felt like something was wrong with me. I mean, something was That's wrong. It, yeah. Um, the, the, you know, I, I wish that I had understood at that time brain states and that I was being taken out of my cortex, my, my critical thinking part of my brain and overly activated in my midbrain into, um, survival mode. Yeah. Just, just trying to survive and, and, and overly activated perhaps in the limbic system, which, um, you know, at 13 years old, when you're a young boy um, in the Jewish community at that point, I was a, I was a young man. And mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, to, to be as emotional as I was, there was, um, again, just, just that feeling of different. And I remember- And we can't understate, I mean, this is massive, this state of anxiety because of something- in your brain and body that was out of your control mm-hmm. and that that state of that was the existence in your mind and, and your body and and the the feeling that something's wrong clearly manifested in anxiety yeah. intense 
So that's how it seems it it showed up for you, that that belief of defectiveness and anxiety, major. And and again, I I was so fortunate to have family um, camp Mm -hmm. counselors who um, it was it was over the summer months, but friends who who loved me and supported me. Now, um, did the label of like you have an eating disorder? Because did people say call it an eating disorder, even though I had, it was I had a therapist that yeah uh, labeled it as anorexia, which always yeah yeah. So that that label from a clinical perspective was put on to it, uh, anorexia nervosa. Um, now and then that's... I remember with the labeling, uh, again, right. like the, the, the shame really emerged in, in different ways for me after Doug passed, okay. um, in the school system where I, you know, I, I struggled to engage with schools, school. I was best friends with Doug from the time that we were like three or four until he passed away when we were 15. And so being in school was activating for me. It made me just think of Doug and, and our time together and miss him. I, I felt his absence. Um, and I struggled to engage with school curriculum as much. I was dealing with much bigger questions. I think there might've been some additional sensitivity from the eating disorder about questions of life and death at mm. that age. And I remember the school system, um, I got labeled and diagnosed at 15 with ADHD, depression, sort of this moment in time became a label that stuck with me for over a decade. And, um, you know, I remember my mom being an incredible advocate for me, where the school system was at one point when I was struggling, talked to my mom and said, Jesse may not, like this school may not be the best place for Jesse right now. And my mom said he needs those relationships. He needs to be in the place that he's called home. I, and, and she, I was so lucky to have an advocate like that in my corner because if I had lost my other friends too, I, I don't know um, what would have happened. But that shame and labeling that came about because of a, a horrific accident and, and moment and traumatic um, part in my life that response that brought about be like conditions and, and, and thoughts of shame and I'm different and there's something wrong with me when I was just dealing with, we were all dealing in different ways with Mm -hmm. tragedy and, and and grief and trauma. Um, You know, that I think also played a role in that initial step of my career toward the education system of, I know that we can understand and support students better to reach their full potential. That, and then that was the birth of, of the passion of the, of this change you envisioned. I, th- I think so. And, and the and, opposite of what I hear you saying is the opposite of the, the, the darkness, the label, and and this literal interpretation of of a human experience from everything on the outside, your body. The opposite of that was your mother knowing this human being and soul that she brought to this world, and 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 her advocacy 
speaking on your soul's behalf. Like he needs this connection that, so what a beautiful example of the extremes. Yeah. It was that love and, you know, there are other examples, but like I said, at the beginning, I come from a family that is deeply rooted in unconditional love and to have that support has been the greatest antidote to the shame and trauma that I, that I've experienced. And was the road to get you eventually tell me how how that process was after the tragedy to, to that healing. It was so in addition to my mom's advocacy, you know, I, I've got to give my dad was also my baseball coach and baseball for me, it was something that I had to look forward to during the eating disorder, during, um, you know, the, after, after Doug passed away, it was, it was something that even in the darkest of times gave me an escape, something that I could look forward to, which Mm -hmm. was so important. And an assistant coach who coached with my dad. Um, well, let me take a step back. After Doug passed away, I had recurring nightmares that I was on the plane with him and I, I couldn't sleep. I really, really struggled, which had cascading impacts, of course. And so I wasn't sleeping. I was really struggling. I, I was I was gaining weight. I, I was sort of hermiting within my house when I wasn't at school and there wasn't mm-hmm. baseball. And an assistant coach who I had known for many years, who had also coached us in basketball when I played with Doug and his son. Mm-hmm. Um, but Coach Felix saw that I was struggling, and he invited me to work out in the mornings with the wrestling team. And uh, I wasn't a wrestler. I've never wrestled <laughs> in <laughs> my life. But it gave me something to do early in the mornings. And the process of getting physically stronger, the process of that repetitive behavior actually created neural pathways. I didn't know it at the time, but it was Mm -hmm. creating healthy neural pathways and giving me something to do. And I was more prepared going into school. I had gotten a lot of energy out. And Mm -hmm. then by the end of the day, I had become so exhausted that I started to sleep through the night. And over the next two years, Mm -hmm. so after a year of, I I will say, deep depression and a lot of struggling, um, you know, I still struggled, but that was an opportunity, a non-clinical opportunity. I also had a therapist who I continued to see and there were clinical supports as well for me. But I really think that that non-clinical opportunity of growing stronger and getting, seeing transformation within myself, being able Mm -hmm. to prepare better for baseball, which again was that thing that I so looked forward to and loved. That led to a process of post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic wisdom that enabled an integration of sorts that as I stepped into my career, and we'll get into C-TIP in a bit, but as we've done the work has allowed for me to integrate my experiences in a very powerful way of the horrible sides of trauma, as well as the wonderful sides of love and healing and support that I know is possible if our society prioritizes it, that allows for um, us to move through tremendously stressful times and and a lot of adversity um, and not as broken people, as a part of life. You are speaking exactly what 
my heart is dedicated to doing in the world. And I'm so happy that we connected. Your story is amazing. And what I heard you explain is, is this journey where you were allowed because of the love around you to find a sense. It was the beginning of like as almost a spiritual path to find your your identity and your personal understanding of your, for lack of a better word, your ego, your, I like baseball. I am a baseball player. Um, and you owned it versus this label. And how powerful that is, just like the overall arching love you had around you and your mom, how powerful that Ident- that that identity growth, as well as the love, counteracted the 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 label, the outside stuff that was going on. And then you you very eloquently explained. Then it overlapped with the psychological, and the physical, and your sleeping, and the psychological. So that's the power of love, and that's the power of having a safe and calm space to sit in and develop our own, our own identity, our own truth and connect with it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I, then when you started in the, in baseball and then you were, did you go, what were your studies and how did you end up especially at such a young age with such impactful work. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate all of that. And I, I feel so fortunate to tell my story. And again, I know we'll get to it a little bit more in a bit, but um, we all have stories and when we feel safe enough and not everybody needs to share their stories. And there are a number of reasons why some right. folks prefer not to on mass scales. I mean, we, we all, have, should should feel conditions of empowerment and safety to control our own narratives. Um, but what Thank we hope to do with CTIP is weave a fabric of stories of diverse lived experiences and community contexts that help us generate a stronger society moving forward. And so I'll just throw that out there really quickly. I, I, I my, my technical major in college was <laughs> law and society. Um, I was, I had my, my real major, I would, I think was more baseball. I played college baseball, um, at Oberlin, oh, that's but, great. but that doesn't count as a major, at least not at Oberlin. Oh uh, no, no, that's <laughs> so, great. Where? It, it, Oberlin's a small school in Ohio. Um, oh, that's great. Oh so, yeah. Have a, have a lot of love, um, for that school and that community beyond just the school. What's um, your favorite team today? I'm a Philly. I I am a Philadelphia <laughs> sports fanatic. That's great. Uh, so I, I love Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, you know, have a, have a special place in my heart. Uh, awesome. Yeah, unapologetically. Um, so you were playing baseball, and then in your studies, and, what? And-, and so the one other big traumatic moment that I didn't get to um, for me was. Uh, at the end of my sophomore year of college, I was actually arrested for something um, that I didn't do. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. 
Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And it was uh, a really traumatizing moment that there was a lot of shame there um, that echoes in many ways um, the the stigma that I felt in high school just from something that people saw as my fault that, again, I, I knew I was innocent of. And, and so that was something. But having wanted wow. to be an attorney, you know, uh, I, I come from a family my grandfather was an attorney in Philadelphia. A lot of my other family members are attorneys. And so I figured that if baseball didn't work out for me, I, w- I would end up being um, involved in the law and, right. and be an attorney at some level. Um, and after that moment, I saw a different side of the justice system that I think really uh, made me curious in a different way about my privilege um, and also... Uh, the silver lining of it all um, was that I had court-mandated community service at a nonprofit organization called Oberlin Community Services. And So let me that- stop you. This <laughs> is amazing. And in Homas Within You is the story of Arthur Carmona, who was a wrongfully convicted youth, who eventually was freed. But it talks about... I, I can't believe that you went through that. The the internal struggle he must have gone through, you must have gone through with being innocent, yet having everything around you saying otherwise, the strength that you had to get through that connected to your truth and your knowing um, to even find that strength during that time I with, uh, is incredible. There, it wasn't all strength for sure. There, at many times in my life, there was a tremendous amount of struggle. Again, the outlet. So, of so course. anyway, that that moment really made me question. I didn't want to be an attorney anymore. I saw I, I, it wasn't your purpose, you know, the doubting the system. But yeah, but that that outlet of um, Oberlin Community Services OCS, a nonprofit yes. that was serving the broader community. That you know, uh, there there were food deserts a lot of rural poverty out in Ohio. And over the next two years, I um, created, or I, I became, uh, I developed a position as the public health advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it went from 25 hours of court mandated community service to, to, I don't know how many, probably like a couple thousand hours of volunteerism. totally, literally transformed something into an amazingly beautiful thing. I found purpose with others, yes. right? I found purpose in community um, and being able to use my, sometimes my physical strength, shocking, stocking shelves at the food cupboard, um, mm-hmm. you know, the resources that I had at college, the the academic privilege that I had in supporting educational work, um, helping to write grants for a text for wellness program. Um, you know, I, I got to do all that. And that, that was actually where the change campaign was born. So um, let me stop you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we can I'm, I'm talk about all the. No, no, you're not. I love it. Uh, I'm uh, f- for listeners. 
to know how you ended up transitioning to this purposeful work and, and creating it. When, I mean, I'm sure anger came up, when um, fear for the future, when all those different challenging feelings came up and the ups and downs, um, you know, it's that's a whole story, a whole interview, but we struggle during those things. Yeah. And was it the love around you and then the community sense that opposed those dark moments? And how how did you like get through that? And and did you tell yourself it is okay that there's ups and downs? So, Share a little bit about the reality of the yeah. struggle to get there. Yeah. So it, it's not like I just developed these healthy coping mechanisms. Like I, after I got arrested, I really struggled with um, pot and alcohol. Um, and, and I did, was not like doing well all the time. Right. I, I again, I, I found um, purpose, I think, in being able to serve community that gave me something to look forward to in a different way to and thus loving yourself more and and then again had yeah and and having the family of like just that unconditional love that 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 like truly deep natured love um Beautiful. that I felt supported even during the toughest times um and that doesn't mean that everybody was it was always easy, right? Like right. Love, love, it, was, it was tough. And, and, um, but you knew it was there and present. And exactly. I didn't Even feel when you were beating yourself we, up. Okay. And we talk about how wow. healing happens in the context of healthy relationships over time. And so to have those relational buffers and people in the community, people at the school who, um, I felt less isolated from definitely helped. Um, okay. and it was, um, over time, actually, I, I, about 11 months after the arrest, um, I think one of the transformative moments for me was I had a really bad concussion. I had gotten hit in the head with a baseball. And um, in that isolation where I couldn't, I couldn't look at screens, I wasn't allowed to go to class, a normal concussion protocol, um, very limited engagement outside of getting meals. Um, I, I had a it was it was a time to pause and reflect on where I had gone in mm -hmm. in my life and where I wanted to go from there, mm -hmm. recognizing that I couldn't change the past and and in that time, I think differently than I had before, I found compassion and grace for myself and and that love for myself, not just in serving others but just intrinsic to being as I believed other people were worthy of love. I, I found that for, for myself, from myself, um, and sort of directed a narrative of where, given the reality of, of what my life had, had become at that point, where it could go. And you were I think on it, your own side. And, and that's where that advocacy part, that's where, um, having learned about the brokenness of our systems and becoming more of, you know, social justice oriented and really wanting to promote liberty and justice for, for everyone. 
um, you know, deeply held values. I, I found avenues and opportunities to start to instill that. And so Oberlin Community Services, again, launched the change campaign to fundraise for OCS originally. It's now its own nonprofit. That it I began run, but- as part of Overland community. So that was where it started. Um, okay. Yeah. And then Beautiful. got involved. Yeah. Just um, the over change time. campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And then. And say more. About the change campaign. Yeah. Uh, so originally it was just, it's really hard to be a nonprofit uh, to, <laughs> to, to not work with money. And so after we had written the. Uh, we wrote a grant or I helped to write a grant. Other people really led the process, but it was a text for wellness program to the office, uh, to Ohio's office of, or off a commission on minority health. Um, and it raised $50,000 within my head. Like if at Oberlin, the thought was if we could gather an average of $20 per student, that would create $60,000 in revenue for Oberlin Community Services each year. It was an opportunity for the the school to support the community mm-hmm. in general operating support instead of just programmatic funds. And so the change campaign started as an effort to raise literal coins like change mm-hmm. all across campus, oh, have see. departments compete against each other. And as I continued on through my career at 12 Plus, the Attorney General's office, I served as director of development at a community center in Philadelphia after my master's program um, while serving as a board member when CTIP was an all-volunteer organization before becoming the executive director for CTIP. The change campaign just kept evolving through- So you had this identity and belief in your true self that was fueled by this advocate part of you that believed change, positive change could happen. And that just kept driving you. Did you run into walls where the arrest would come up or, or, you know, did what you kept moving forward? It's I I was fortunate with the arrest that it was a low grade arrest. We settled. um, So it got expunged. And so that was more once it got expunged as I navigated my career, um, that, that was not, uh, an obstacle, but there were obstacles every step of the way, whether it was that I still run into obstacles of I'm too young, um, mm-hmm. and experienced it there, there's, yeah, I was going to say we're like, you sound step. like my twin, but you're <laughs> much younger, <laughs> you know, you, I'm, but, but okay. So then C tip. Uh, we're going to have to do another, another yeah, interview. I'm sorry. I but I'm, I'm no, I want to know the goal, the mission right now of CTIP. I mean, the campaign for trauma informed policies and practices is the child of part of your story. And uh, today, um, what is it and, and how can people get involved and then I have a question for you. Yeah. So so CTIP was founded by a lot of leaders in the trauma-informed movement. When I was still in college, uh, folks recognized that there were two big needs. There was a missing advocacy voice around yes. trauma-informed policy um, and recognizing that government systems could do a much better job of investing in root causes that were driving costs and, and inefficiencies throughout our systems. 
And that was one piece. And the other, the you other side is chills. that yes. <laughs> the other side is that there was um, even within the trauma informed movement, there was so much siloing going on. Work in trauma informed education, work in trauma informed healthcare, work in the in in the criminal legal system. There was mm-hmm. and and many many others, but there wasn't a body that held a comprehensive vision of what a truly trauma informed society could look like. So there was, you're absolutely right. There were so many trailblazers and leaders, one of them being Nancy O'Malley, whose episode was released last Friday. She was the former Alameda County district attorney, but a national victims rights advocate. And who's, there's so many unsung heroes um, whose vision is just amazing for more trauma informed investigations, policies, cross-examination, whatever it might be. But you're saying the the wording of the vision and the mission, an umbrella that we are all standing for this and advocating for this wasn't present. For for the whole movement across all silos and systems. You know, collaboration okay. is a necessary principle of a trauma-informed okay. approach. And so how we coordinate and align across different agencies and systems Love becomes it. really important to a trauma-informed approach. And so that was where CTIP okay. was was birthed. And then we were unfunded for six years um, before the pandemic made it impossible to ignore any longer the need to fundamentally reorient the way that our systems operate. And so now, um, as we've continued to grow and there are so many founders and, and folks who have contributed to this movement and the organization and the work um, who deserve to be recognized and spoken every single one of them but but the work has become from our team our board our volunteer network and, and advocates all across the country in every state um really focused on developing trauma-informed approaches to advocacy so in addition to advocating for trauma-informed legislation and different people have different interests based on their own lived and lived experiences, both professional and personal. Um, We know that it's so important to be congruent with a trauma-informed approach while we are promoting trauma-informed approaches Mm -hmm. in the world. And so we're really trying to build an infrastructure to support the development of an advocacy network that serves as a foundation for which diverse lived experiences and community contexts can come together mm-hmm. and work to co-create. Um, so it's bringing future. the language; it's changing the the approach and thinking. Yeah, yeah. In, in then, all systems, yeah. I call it spiritual advocacy. It's like it's like the, a human approach. It's it's if we're advocating for our own truth and human experience yeah. and we can see that in others but but you're you're taking that vision through communities and and through legislative bodies how else to and then, it's it's changing the language right and yeah, the so so the the advocacy the policy work is definitely more of a top-down approach and then we also have a bottom-up okay. approach where we are supporting the development of what we call community-led, cross-systems, trauma-informed, prevention-oriented, resilience-building, healing-focused, and um, sustainability-oriented systems and coalitions Mm -hmm. that drive the work in communities at the state level and working to develop a network 
that is not just advocating for policy, but also integrating trauma-informed approaches into the community fabric through a grassroots approach and working to develop a bi-directional flow. So it's introducing this vision and then if they were to adopt it in their own mission and policies, both from a private like nonprofits all over the nation and government, law enforcement, is that it? So if somebody is changing, adding trauma-informed, then they become part of the network? Yeah, our goal is to create sort of a a movement building where, you know, the coalitions are specifically, you know, community-led sort of coalitions. A lot of times that is nonprofit-backed. Sometimes it's less formally um, developed. Sometimes it can come out of a government agency, especially at state levels. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of governmental support in some states. There are even community networks. But what is support? What is considered a success or or change? Is it a change in their, for example, you know, requirements for investigations, or what? What is considered? It it depends. A, a progress. Yeah. Okay. So it 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 depends. It it can be, and there, there's a lot of work in you know the criminal legal system. Um, Educating. You know, yeah, the education system. I, I think that one of the, in that cross systems approach, mm-hmm. there's a really well documented example called the self healing communities model that was mm-hmm. done in Washington state through the Family Policy Council that invested in a network of these cross sector coalitions in several dozen communities a- mm-hmm. around the state that opted in to work with this program. And over a 17 year period, they, uh, through trauma-informed approaches, community-led supports, and sort of layering and looping learning processes mm-hmm. and connecting to learn from each other. In I see, so county, cross-training. Yeah. And so in one county, they reduced youth suicide and suicide attempts by 98%. They reduced uh, like high school dropout rates by 50%, juvenile justice system involvement, teen pregnancy, like all of these different factors by addressing the core root of trauma, essentially, and making sure that the community was bought in and empowered to lead the process. Mm -hmm. All of those changes that occurred wound up developing a cost avoidance for the state of over a billion dollars. So there was a a 35x return on investment that was documented. We need to connect you with the Family Justice Center Network, who's who's did this with interpersonal violence and more and better efficient collaborative stuff. That sounds like a same like a, a the same type of. It's a change in the deliver in the system delivery. It's a complete change. So it is bottom up and top down. Yeah, and I, I I see what you're saying. Yeah, I've always said that when we have a bottom-up and top-down approach where Mm -hmm. it meets in the middle, that's when Mm -hmm. our society is going to flourish, right? We need to align and coordinate and support Mm -hmm. across all levels. And I think that to what you just said at the end of the day, what we are working toward is a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we operate and orient our systems to better support, to use your language from earlier, the, the human experience of what we all go through and and to work to really reweave the social fabric and create communities that better support people to reach their full potential, to to, to thrive in their lives at an individual family community. And as we do that that through our social understanding, that is through educating, understanding, 
seeing, acknowledging the effect of trauma in got to be a part community and life. Um, another a book that comes up is the politics of trauma by Stacey Haynes. If that's a that's right up this alley. But I have a question: What are the efforts, if any? I hope there are some um, in the improvement of trauma-informed coverage of interpersonal violence, of addiction, of mental health struggles in the media? And has there been any approach to, you know, the media I'm putting in my quotes in my hands? Um, because we know that when there is um, media coverage and articles and statements made of the outside, what happened, the behavior, the the rea- responses to pain, that that in and of itself can result in a story that is re-traumatizing to survivors. Um, and so I have a big push um, to, to increase trauma-informed policies and practices for media and interviewers and everything that may put a picture on a tragedy. Yeah. So are so, there any efforts in that area? Yeah. Yeah. So, so two to mention and a lot more needs to be done. Um, but my, my, another colleague, Laura Braden, who serves as our lead of communications, um, she put together a trauma-informed journalism toolkit that works oh, to discuss fantastic. some of the components of what you were just discussing, even in addition to the interview itself, um, how we follow it's, up, where we're not just exploiting okay. people's stories, but we're caring. And then out of that, we interviewed um, a longtime media correspondent um, on our podcast, Tamara Cherry. Um, and so there's an episode of our podcast that is discussing trauma-informed approaches to journalism as well. Again, there, there's and media. There, there is more that needs to be done. And I know that okay, I, that I is apologize right again up. for spending so much time talking about my own story so that we don't no, have the uh, that time is to talk right about up my alley. Much, but, and, but we have been, no. we, we recognize the need and have begun to, with our limited capacity that we hope to grow. Okay. And to be able you to got me more. on that team. You got me on that team, Jesse. I mean, I'll do whatever I can. Again, turning um, the tragedy that in my interpersonal struggles were highly publicized and it was part of a, a, a threat from um, the person who was abusing me to publicize them. And I now have shifted it all into finding the truth as you did and trying to encourage those trauma-informed um, approaches in journalism um, through my own story. So we crossed roads for a reason and any way that I can support CTIP's efforts in that way, um, I would be honored. I appreciate And I think it. we will do another episode on just that yeah. with your colleague. Thank you now, for sharing your story. And if I can just say, because I know that we need to Absolutely. Wrap up say really whatever quickly. you I, want. I think so your powerful story of why this matters to you so much, mine and so many others, if we can 
we are working to build the movement that allows for everybody's diverse lived experience and, and, and community context to show up to help shape the ways that our systems better are better informed about the real experiences and impacts of the systems as yes. well as what the solutions may look like. And so that's where, in particular, our community advocacy network, CTIP CAN, is a free resource that anybody can join to join the movement. We mobilize around legislation and, again, support the development of a network and try to teach and support those trauma-informed approaches to advocacy. And so that powerful story of why this is so important to you, why you mobilize around change and myself as well, CTIP wants to create the network that allows for everybody's experiences that help shape the human experience and broader systems experiences to bring those together to generate a very powerful movement that transforms society toward a trauma-informed future. I am so overwhelmingly grateful that our that our roads crossed because it often feels that we're alone, but we're not and in wanting to make that change. And everything that you're doing, everything that CTIP is doing and that you personally are doing is so inspiring and enlightening. And, and if I can support any of it through the work that I do and help spread the word, but also build, you know, just do outreach, especially on the trauma-informed journalism, any way that I can support you and CTIP, I am right there. And thank you so much again for the work you do and for sharing your story and transforming you, your own struggles into something so powerful. I appreciate that. Thank you as well. Thank you. You are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, nadia-davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.